Hola and bienvenidos to all of you joining us for a very special panel presentation all about gente y planeta. Mi nombre es Claudia Pineda Tibbs. My pronouns are they, them, and ella en español. Uh, before we begin today, I'd like to recognize the Ohlone Costanoan Esalen Nation on whose traditional territory I temporarily occupy. Um, I honor the elders and ancestors of the uh, Ohlone Costanoan Esalen Nation whose spiritualities are tied to the land and acknowledge them as the past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Now, I welcome you into this space as we embark on a conversation about sustainability, conservation, as well as social, racial, and environmental justice issues with members of the two-spirited LGBTQIA community. Today's talk allows us to further the mission of Latino Outdoors, which is to inspire, connect, and engage Latino communities in the outdoors and embrace cultura y familia as part of the outdoor narrative, ensuring our history, heritage, and leadership are valued and presented. Or, and represented, sorry. Um, it's now my pleasure to introduce you to our speakers. First up, please um, allow me to introduce you to David Hernandez, who uses he, him pronouns. David is a fisheries scientist working at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program. The program assesses the sustainability of wild capture and farmed seafood to provide purchasing recommendations to consumers, businesses, and folks who source seafood. His day-to-day -day work consists of background research on global fisheries and writing the reports that ultimately become Seafood Watch ratings. Gracias for being here, David. Thank Next, you for having me. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Shauna Edberg, who uses she, they pronouns. As Hispanic Access Foundation's Director of Conservation Programs, Shauna works to promote environmental stewardship in the Latino community, elevate Latino voices in conservation policy, activate Latino conservation leaders, and provide them with the resources they need to create a more sustainable and just future. Hola, Shana. Rounding out our presentadores is Dr. Melissa Linton Villafranco, who uses she, her pronouns. Dr. Melissa is an assistant professor in women and gender studies at Arizona State University and is the faculty coordinator for the LGBT undergraduate study certificate at ASU. She's an emergent author on reproductive justice in the United States and El Salvador, what, what? Speaking up, uh, speaking to her goal to foster transnational solidarity within the Central American diaspora. Additionally, her nonprofit and community service work is focused on autonomous community building. She's currently the program coordinator for the new Latino Outdoors Phoenix chapter. Muchas gracias to all of you for being here today. So let's jump into our conversation. Um, David, when we were chatting just a little bit earlier, Dr. Melissa said, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. And I think that's probably because seafood is such a cultural staple in many Latin American countries. Um, from ceviche to mojara frita, uh, flavor and taste tend to be what's top of mind when choosing fish or mariscos, when we're at the store, the mercado, um, or when we're at a restaurant. So what can you tell us about the state of seafood and how 
um, as consumers, we can support ocean-friendly choices? Yeah, so thank you for that question. Um, the demand for seafood in general is on the rise um, and it's projected to increase over the next several decades. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, a lot of folks are thinking about how to make sustainable choices um, for their seafood decisions. Um, seafood Watch approaches that question through a market-based approach. So our goal is to provide consumers, um, businesses, folks who source seafood um, with information about which fisheries are sustainable, um, which aquaculture um, production facilities offer a sustainable product. Um, and we do that by looking into a fishery, figuring out how many fish are there, um, are they doing a good job to manage the amount that they're catching? Are they doing a good job of um, minimizing environmental impact? Um, and are there like good avenues for um, folks to express concerns um, to, to make their needs be heard and to be met? Um, and what this gets wrapped up into is our Seafood Watch rating system. Um, we use a, um, a traffic light rating system. So we give seafood a green, a yellow, or a red rating. Uh, green being the best choice, yellow is a good alternative, and red is something to avoid. Um, so what I would recommend for most people is um, jump on seafoodwatch.org um, and you can find all of our ratings up there for seafood. Um, and don't try and learn everything about every fish that may possibly be out there. I would say pick a couple of fish that you know you can find at your supermarket or wherever you purchase seafood, um, restaurants you go to, the things that you love most, um, and figure out which ones are going to be a sustainable choice. Mm -hmm. um, the goal here is that you have in the back of your mind knowledge on a couple of species that you know are good to go. Um, so the majority of your seafood purchasing is going to be sustainable. Um, on a personal level, I think it's a lot to ask everyone to know everything about everything. And it's a huge burden to ask that people make sure 100% of their purchasing decisions are sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, if we go for 50%, if we go for 75%, that's way better than 0% and you're on the right track. Um, so that would be my recommendation. That's great. Thank you. That is wonderful. Yes, I love that there are opportunities to engage as consumers without the additional like complexity of, okay, um, I need to know where it was sourced, all of the countries involved in getting this fish from my, uh, from the ocean to my plate, plus all of these other things, right? Like, I think it's very challenging sometimes, challenging sometimes to, um, to fully immerse yourself in where did my food come from when there are so many layers. And I think that's power that we can reclaim for ourselves with that knowledge so that we can fuel our bodies and, um, and have some nutritious opportunities for us to still embark in some of those cultural traditions and foods that are a staple for our community. So thank you, David. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, my next question is for Shauna. And um, Shauna, the work that you do is, is phenomenal at the Hispanic Access Foundation. And, and we know that Latinos represent the largest untapped segment of the population um, that has a passion for the outdoors and for stewardship. 
Um, and, you know, people sometimes wonder, like, where are the Latinos? We're here. And being <laughs> green comes naturally to us. It's, it's rooted in our indigenous heritage as natural caretakers of the environment. I mean, how many times did you see your abuelita with the container of, I can't believe it's not butter, and you have the <laughs> in there, and like, that is legit upcycling, right? Um, yet we understand that the healthy that healthy communities stem from a healthy natural environment. Um, however, communities of color are disproportionately impacted by irresponsible environmental practices and policies. How can we ensure public land, water, and climate policies reflect our heritage, our culture, and our community? Yes, thank you so much for that important question. Um, at Hispanic Access, we have worked for many years to counter this narrative that the environment is a white issue, that only white people are environmentalists. And we've made a ton of progress in the past few years, thanks to organizations like ours and Latino Outdoors and Outdoor Afro and many, many more that have elevated the voices of communities of color. Um, and I also especially want to recognize our environmental justice organizations have shown that the intersection where segregation and racism and classism meet in the inability to live, work, and play in a healthy environment. Um, and since this is a pride chat, this is a queer issue as well, because homophobia, transphobia, and other structural problems like wage disparities have meant that the queer community also largely lacks that healthy environment. We know from our polling data, as well as, of course, all that cultural heritage that you mentioned, that Latinos care more about the environment than white folks do. It's a fact. <laughs> so the question becomes, why are Latino voices not being heard? Why aren't Latino perspectives reflected in environmental and climate policy? Um, and there's a lot of answers to this question, uh, most of which boil down to racism. Um, but we can't be satisfied with just letting ourselves be shut out of the discussion. Uh, to share a little bit about my background, I'm Jewish. And because of my early Jewish education, I was instilled with the firm belief that we all have an obligation to not sit idly by. So I will yell and kick down doors and barge my way into meetings if that's what it takes, um, mostly figuratively, because I also have a, a disability. So it's important for me for that you all know that you can make a difference from wherever in the world you are and whatever tools you're working with. Mm -hmm. I chose my career because it's a way to turn my beliefs and my conscience into action. And at Hispanic Access, we're trying to make these sorts of careers more available and accessible to the Latino community by lowering the barriers to conservation internships. So I hope you all take a look at the Mono Project website, which will be dropped in the chat, um, to see what's available if that's the direction you want to take with your passion. But there's also infinite other ways to have your say. Um, I know people like to make fun of like slacktivism and posting on social media mm -hmm. as a way to express your opinion. But you know what? If you tag your Congress members, I guarantee you their office will read what you have to say uh, because they're all very self-important and like to read about themselves. Tag members of the Biden administration. Email them all politely, please. Um, and keep an eye out for comment periods and new legislation or follow organizations like ours whose mission is to do that for you. 
call your Congress members until they know the sound of your voice and start associating you as someone who cares and has expertise on your issue. And you can even do the same thing with the media, with local journalists and reporters. Um, at Hispanic Access, we've created a whole toolkit on advocacy to help instruct our comunidades on how to make that happen. You can also just make friends working on other issues you support. You might find unexpected allies, not to mention a wealth of experience and relationships among advocates working on everything from disability justice to criminal justice to voting rights and reproductive justice, because Latinos are queer and trans and Latinos are disabled and Black and Indigenous and unhoused and we all suffer from sexism one way and another. And the more we can make these connections and weave this tapestry of hope and allyship and action, the more power we will all have. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite levers for change is to encourage folks to run for office because it's not all about Congress and the presidency. You can make a difference in your local community by joining advisory committees. Even if you don't win, you can shift the conversation a little bit and you can get our leaders talking about an issue that maybe was new to them. And don't forget, which admittedly I often do, to take the time to step back and take care of yourself. Because in a racist heteronormative society that works to grind you down every day, simply being visible and thriving as a queer person or a person of color is a radical act. Mm -hmm. In a world where climate change is literally erasing the cultural heritage of communities of color, make space for art and literature and song and celebration because we need that too. Being unabashedly and loudly yourself and your culture will show your friends and family that it's possible for them to do that too. And that's another victory. So I know I haven't actually talked much about the actual environmental issues today, but that's really what I wanted to say. Turn your beliefs and passions into action in whatever way that feels meaningful to you. And thank you to Claudia and to Latino Outdoors for giving me the opportunity uh, to do that here today. Oh, Shauna, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. Those were powerful words. Um, and those were just amazing recommendations and suggestions on how we can step into power um, as somebody who also is Jewish. Um, Tikkun Olam is very important to me and repairing the world. That's that's one of our values. And that can be in the literal sense of I'm going to, you know, go out there and plant some trees or tend to this little garden, um, but also repairing the world that has continued to oppress us um, and helping to remove those barriers for others that come um, after us. So mm -hmm. Definitely agree with what you're saying. And as somebody who sits on my county's um, parks commission, I feel like, yes, I can be here and show up in this space and do what I can in order to advocate for more opportunities for all people um, to step into the outdoors, be their authentic selves, and um, just relish in the beauty that nature provides us so that we can have more of that connection with the land rather than feel like they need to be separate, which is very much as a result of colonization and white supremacy. Um, so the outdoors are for all. And I'm so happy that today we are all orgullosamente outdoors, but virtual and inside together. Thank you, Shana. Um, now, my final pregunta goes to Dr. Melissa. 
Um, over the decades, million, um, several million Central American migrants have sought opportunity, uh, refuge, and stability in the United States. Uh, in the US and Central America, social and economic marginalization can also increase the risk of violence and discrimination, and that risk increases for LGBTQIA people. Um, as an ethnographer and cultural professor, what were the queer sexual identities among indigenous peoples in Central America before the arrival of European colonizers? And how can we undo the generations of queer oppression and achieve liberation? Yeah, it's a, a really powerful question that I, I think I work through often in the classroom and in community spaces and really on my own too, when I'm actually, I'm, my family's from El Salvador and when I'm going back, I'm envisioning, imagining um, mourning and, and you know all the emotions that one that lives in the diaspora has when they return to the homeland. And um, I'm really happy to be here. I just wanted to touch on, um, I had some points that I could maybe bring up at the end, but Shauna brought up the idea of organizing from where you're from. And I, I really love that, um, that there's so many ways to be an activist. And it, part of the work is figuring out what strengths that you possess, that you feel like you want to share with people, that you have the energy to share with people. Um, so I, I'll go ahead and get into some of what Indigenous sexual diversity has looked like in Central America and then end with you know, some hope for organizing in a particularly dark period, I feel, in the U.S., which is saying a lot. Um, but indigenous sexual diversity in Centro America pre-Spanish Spanish colonization is an interesting question and ultimately a very heterogeneous story, meaning that it's very different across Central America. And the regions we're speaking of when we mention Centro America are El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, Belize, Costa Rica, and Panama. So it's difficult because of um, geography on the one hand and, and the heterogeneity that I spoke to, but also because of genocide, it's difficult to trace indigenous identity because genocide, legal violence and restrictions on indigenous clothing and cultural celebrations have been particularly stringent in Central America. And additionally, there's a cultural problem or what I consider a type of colonial amnesia where people from these countries like my um i'll do a loving blast like one of my tias thinks yeah i asked her where are the people in el salvador and she's like no existe no hay en el salvador so it's interesting where this colonial amnesia has pervaded the like everyday person but it's easy to deny um, perhaps not easy, but more accepted to deny indigenous presence in El Salvador than it is for a Central American country like Guatemala, where between 41 and 60% of the population OI today is indigenous. Now the emergence of the Maya, which is generally the civilization of indigeneity that is referred to in Central America, emerged in 500 BCE. And it was an advanced Mayan civilization that generally resided in the highlands of both Guatemala and El Salvador. I think I can speak most to indigenous sexual diversity in Guate, even though I'm from El Salvador, um, which is a question that you know I, I struggle with on my own. But in, on a mainstream level, Guatemalans like Rigoberta Menchu in her book, um, Crossing Borders in 1998 said that she had never even heard of homosexuality 
prior to leaving her hometown of Chimel. And that's not to say that homosexuality doesn't exist in Huate or in indigenous communities, but rather that it has different language, that it looks different. There are reports of sexual diversity that's been evidenced by archeological artifacts and pre-conquest paintings that actually depict same-sex interaction. Um, and these, the evidence of this has been located in different um, caves, which, you know, spelunking and cave diving, caves in general are very sacred sites for indigenous peoples in Central America. But this, these artifacts are located at the Najdunish um, caves. So, um, you know, now there's a, a difficulty, I think, uh, a lot of violence against the LGBTQ community in indigenous um, areas like Guatemala, where indigeneity is so per, um, like the majority. Um, what did uh, diverse sexuality look like prior? There was a deep connection between spiritual rituals and queerness. So it was often related to the like a stage of ritual. So shamans and priests could engage in ritualized homosexual acts with their patients or with the gods as well, which I think is, you know, would actually make for really interesting fan fiction. But again, like I said, nowadays, LGBTQ members of indigenous communities are often not accepted. And that's due to residual colonialism, certainly Spanish colonialism and also religious fundamentalism, um, particularly Catholicism, which I think we're seeing, seeing rear its head in a, uh, a grave level in the US right now. I, I will say that there is a tendency for people in the US or that like Latinos that live in diaspora to use Western ideas of the LGBT community to cast onto indigenous peoples, in, in this case, in Central America. And I don't want to fall into a binary of like this practice is good and this practice is bad, but rather it's complicated. So an example is terms like chapinex, which like chapin or chapina is used to refer to someone that's from Huate, um, maybe like how sipota or like my family calls me chalateca in El Salvador. But so terms like chapinex, which would then refer to gender neutrality and gender diversity call, is hearkening from Latinx and shows how the Central American diaspora transits between culture and language. And this brings me to my final point, which is the idea of migration. You know, my question was prefaced by the caravan. And um, I think of migration both in how people move physically and also how ideas um, are transiting. So, you know, if you consider Guatemala and El Salvador as pre-colonial meccas, for Maya civilizations, why is it that there's evidence of mass migration um, and disappearance even of these enormous civilizations? I think even when I visited Teotihuacan and Efe, there was a similar story of a volcanic eruption that caused the ultimate fleeing or migration. So there is historical evidence that overcrowding and famine and climatic change and geologic catastrophes have contributed to migration. Um, and that issue still is in effect today, really, with what I call environmental refugees and others in the field do, which is people that, you know, in the caravan, we conceptualize people are leaving because of just danger, violence, and joblessness, which is true. Um, but there are, are uh, other um, reasons, reasons that cause people to leave like environmental degradation um, that I think also need to be placed at the forefront of when, when we think of issues of migration. 
I know I'm going, I'm like popping off, but I'll, I'll end with like the question of how do we undo generations of queer oppression and liberation or and achieve liberation? And, you know, I'm like sometimes less interested in articulating oppression and more invested in concrete and imaginative liberatory practices, which brings me back to Shauna's point. And also, um, you know, I think about like the where we first started with um, having knowledge, practical knowledge and education about which fish you should be seeking out. So um, I'm more interested in not what makes me oppressed, but more what makes me resilient. And um, I think the most productive means to achieving queer liberation are going to look like, again, going, shout out to my girl Shauna, is taking, knowing that activism takes many shapes and forms and engaging from a place of strength and skill. And I think that we also need to start thinking of working across communities. Like, I think that there is a, a kind of tendency to stay within our like racial identity in, in the way that organizing has kind of unfolded since 2010. And I think that because of issues that are now affecting like across racial boundaries, I think we really need to um, organize in this complex way and think of pleasurable activities as well, um, like on a platonic, romantic and otherwise level. Um, so thank you so much. I really, I hope you can tell love thinking about this question. Yes, no, this is phenomenal. And um, just having your brain for this short moment of time is such an honor. Um, oh and for just being another example in nuestra comunidad of what we can accomplish. I mean, you sitting here as Dr. Melissa is um, is truly an honor to our ancestors. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for mm -hmm. all of that wonderful food for thought. Um, and you know, we we purposefully made this panel presentation almost like um like a little bocadito because we wanted to make sure like we could talk about this for a very long time but um really we wanted to ensure that the folks who are holding multiple marginalized identities can see themselves reflected on this panel who can see themselves um as somebody who would want to pursue a career in policy a career in fisheries a career in science a career in academia and gender studies um and you know we're focusing on being orgullosamente outdoors on being proud of our queerness um but we also know that representation matters and that you can't be what you can't see um so as a final question to each of you um, who do you remember as being an impactful Latinx, Latine, Latino, Latina, queer identifying person that made you feel seen? Um, how about we start in reverse order and we'll go with Dr. Melissa. Yeah, I mean, there's been so many. I was like the only Salvi kid in Girl Scouts for like 10 years. But, you know, the name that came to mind was actually Ruby, Ruby Rodriguez, who is the really the heart and soul I feel of Latino outdoors and alongside with the other incredible board members but her smile and face just like popped into my mind and I think what um there's this tenderness and care about her that makes makes you feel seen upon speaking with her but also like a gentle like tranquility especially when I see her outdoors um so I think of that like a, a wise calm 
quiet wave. And I, I think of Ruby and the, the organizing work that she has sustained and inspired for a lot of people. Shout out to you, Ruby. Yes, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Shauna, how about you? Well, you're forcing me to admit that I actually learned um, the AA pronoun in Spanish from you, Claudia. So I would say you're that person. I was like, what are my pronouns in Spanish? And then I saw your your signature. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like this fits. So thank you for that and uh, for being that person for me. That's sweet. Oh yeah, that really touches my heart. Thank you, Shauna. David, what about you? Um. I think for me, it would have to be my friend Asael. Um, he was a person who is extremely confident in who he is um, and sprinkles that confidence onto other people. Um, he sort of has an aura around him where you feel safe being yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that gave me space to figure out who I was without those, those nagging second thoughts invading too much. Um, so being in his presence um, and having his support was extremely important for my own journey. That's beautiful. Well, thank you all so much again for your tremendous knowledge um, that I hope we'll all take um, so that we can use that as power, so that we can use that to take action. Um, and advocate on behalf of our comunidades. So de nuevo, thank you so much to everyone who joined us today. Feliz Pride. And remember, it doesn't end on June 30th. So whether you identify as queer or if you're an ally, please continue to share stories, authentic stories about um, all of the great things that you heard about today are phenomenal speakers, the organizations that they represent. Um, and thanks again. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was wonderful.